Ten years after Biden got ahead of his skis on same-sex marriage, today he's making his view the law of the land. The lead starts right now. The Respect for Marriage Act, nearly official, federally mandating that all states recognize same-sex and interracial marriages. What this day means for one of the specially invited White House guests who attended today's bill signing ceremony. Plus, first on CNN, new help for Ukraine, the major air defense system that the U.S. may soon send that Zelensky has been begging for for months. And the big economic players tamping down fears of recession. What are they seeing in the data that so many other economists are not? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start this afternoon with two major stories in our politics lead, both at the White House. The first involves your wallet. Today, President Biden celebrated new economic data, which shows that inflation is thankfully cooling more than expected, at least last month. Inflation now sits at 7.1 percent, still high, but the lowest level since last December. Though President Biden acknowledged today too many families are still struggling. Look. I know it's been a rough few years for hardworking Americans and for small businesses as well. And for a lot of folks, things are still pretty rough. But there are bright spots all across America where we're beginning to see the impact of our economic strategy. And we're just getting started. But we begin today with the other major story unfolding right now at the White House. In just a few minutes, President Biden will sign that legislation guaranteeing that states have to recognize same-sex and interracial marriages after the law passed Congress with bipartisan support. Let's get straight to CNN's chief White House correspondent, Phil Manningly, who's at the White House. Phil, walk us through the significance of today's bill signing. Well, I think there's the policy significance and then the symbolism, which is obviously enormous in this moment. On the policy side of things, even in the wake of the 2015 Supreme Court decision that cleared the way for legal gay marriage in the country, across the country, this will serve as a backstop of sorts. It compels every state uh, to allow uh, gay marriage if it's done in another state, even if perhaps there comes a moment where certain laws are shifted and that in that state may uh, try and ban gay marriage. So that's one part of it. The other is it repeals the Defense of Marriage Act. That hasn't been something that's really been focused on much, but it's still technically on the books, even in the wake of the Supreme Court decision that directs the federal government to recognize any same sex uh, marriage from here going forward. The symbolism, though, is enormous. And you can see it on the South Lawn right now. Thousands of people mark this moment, particularly in the wake of some of the Supreme Court decisions that have raised questions about the future of the Obergefell uh, decision back in 2015. This is a moment where, according to some officials, they believe that there's a reassurance here uh, that simply didn't exist before today. And, and Phil, today's signing comes 10 years after Biden's famous TV moment when he came out in support of same-sex marriage back in 2012 ahead of President Obama. Yeah, and the campaign, as I think you would remember better than anybody, was none too pleased by the vice president's decision to do just that. But it's also something, when you look back at that moment, that underscores just how far the country has come in a decade. It seems uh, almost bizarre that this wasn't the kind of general position politically, particularly for a Democratic vice president at the time. And yet, listen to what the vice president said. Take a listen. I am absolutely comfortable with the fact that Men marrying men, women marrying women, and heterosexual men and women marrying women are entitled to the same exact rights, all the civil rights, all the civil liberties. And quite frankly, I don't see much of a distinction uh, beyond that. 
And Jake, that was a moment that will be uh, memorialized in a card given to everybody in attendance as the president gets set to speak. All right, let's listen to him right now, Phil Mattingly. Thanks so much. Final step toward equality, toward liberty and justice, not just for some, but for everyone, everyone. Toward creating a nation where decency, dignity, and love are recognized, honored, and protected. Today, I sign the Respect for Marriage Act into law. Deciding whether to marry, who to marry, is one of the most profound decisions a person can make. And as I've said before, and some of you might remember, on a certain TV show 10 years ago, I got in trouble. Uh, marriage, I mean this involved my heart, marriage is a simple proposition. Who do you love? And will you be loyal with that person you love? It's not more complicated than that. And the law recognizes that everyone should have the right to answer those questions for themselves without the government interference. It also secures the federal rights, protections that come with marriage. Like when your loved one gets sick and you've legally recognized as a next of kin. For most of our nation's history, we denied interracial couples and same-sex couples from these protections. We failed. We failed to treat them with equal dignity and respect. And now... The law requires that interracial marriage and same-sex marriage must be recognized as legal in every state in the nation. I want to thank all of you for being here today, for being part of this important movement. Jill, Kamala, Doug, my cabinet members, including Pete Buttigieg. And a special thanks to our performers, Joy, Sam, and Cindy. Look, you know, and the gay man's choir of Washington, D.C., gay men's marriage choir. And the members of Congress here today in the Senate, this bipartisan vote simply would not have happened without the leadership and persistence of a real hero, Tammy Baldwin, Senator Tammy Baldwin. And thank you, Susan Collins who did not rest until this bill got done. And the leader, Schumer, Senators Portman, Sinema, Tillis, Feinstein, Booker. And in the House, this would not have happened as much wouldn't happen without Nancy Pelosi, this speaker. The quality and dignity of the LGBT community has always been her North Star. From her first speech on the House floor, pledging to end AIDS and signaling the bill and signing the bill today, all that time span. Madam Speaker, on behalf of all Americans, thank you for this and so much more for your decades of service. Also, our special thanks to representatives like Jerry Nadler, who first introduced the Respect for Marriage Act a decade ago, David Cicilline, and Sharice Davids as leaders of the Equality Caucus, and so many others, many of whom are here today, 
who did what was right. Standing behind me are dozens of plaintiffs. Up there, don't jump. The dozens of plaintiffs who fought for marriage equality through the years, as well as families whose existence would not be possible without the bonds of love and this law honors and protects. Look, we're here today to celebrate their courage and everyone who made the day possible. Courage that led to progress. We've seen over the decades progress that gives us hope that every, every generation will continue our journey toward a more perfect union. On this day, I think of Mildred and Richard Loving, a young woman of color and a young white man. They met as family friends and eventually fell in love. In 1958, they drove to Washington, D.C. to get married because the relationship was illegal in Virginia. They went back home five weeks later. Police burst into their house and arrested them for the crime of being married, the crime of being married. They were sentenced to one year in prison unless they agreed to leave Virginia and not return for 25 years. They appealed the sentence and wasn't took till nine years later in 1967 Supreme Court of the United States ruled unanimously. It declared that laws against interracial marriage were unconstitutional. Today, today we're joined by one of the lawyers who represented the Lovings and the widow of their other lawyer that took the fight to the highest court because they believed their love should not be criminalized, but should be honored and respected. As Mildred Loving said, previous generations were, quote, bitterly divided over something that should have been so clear and right. So clear and right. No one could put it better. And later, Mildred fought something else that's so clear and right. Marriage equality for LGBTQ Americans. And today, we celebrate our progress. From Hawaii, the first state to declare that denying marriage of same-sex couples is unconstitutional, to Massachusetts, first state to legalize marriage equality for couples like Gina and Heidi, who just, you just heard from. To all the advocates, <coughs> excuse me, who worked to block or overturn state bans. As you heard earlier, Vice President, Vice President Harris took a stand as Attorney General in California. Talked earlier. Others also spoke out. One of them was my son, Bo Biden, who was attorney general of the state of Delaware, who filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court in favor of marriage equality and pushed to add gender identity protections into the law as well. Today, remember Edie Windsor and her partner. And her partner, Thea. In 1965, they met in their 30s. They fell in love. Secretly, secretly got engaged, and Edie wore an engagement pin rather than a ring to avoid questions. They had 40 wonderful years together. Then, Trey was diagnosed with MS, and Edie became her full-time caregiver. They went to Canada. They got married. As Edie would say, don't postpone joy. And then, Thea died soon after, giving Edie Grieving Edie learned, since their marriage was legally 
wasn't legally recognized, she would have to pay $360,000 in estate taxes. Viewed as strangers rather than partners for four decades. Simply unconscionable and unacceptable. So Edie took her case to the Supreme Court and she won. Before Edie passed away, she fell in love again at age 87. Finally experienced the joy and dignity of legally recognized marriage to Judith. Judith is here today with us. Judith, are you up there? Also here today are many of the 16 plaintiffs in the same-sex marriage case that helped bring us here. They were subjected to intense public scrutiny and harassment, physical threats and violence. For years, as their cases made their way through the courts, Jim couldn't be here today, but he and I spoke on that day in June 2015 when he was one on the steps of the United States Supreme Court. I called him right after that historic victory, a victory not just for the plaintiffs, but for the whole country, and I would argue for the world. My fellow Americans, the road to this moment has been long. But those who believe in equality and justice, you never gave up. Many of you standing on the South Lawn here. So many of you put your relationships on the line, your jobs on the line, your lives on the line to fight for the law I'm about to sign. For me and the entire nation, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's one thing. It's one thing for the Supreme Court <clears throat> to rule on a case. But well, it's another thing entirely if elected representatives of the people to take a vote on the floor of the United States Congress and say loudly and clearly, love is love, right is right, justice is justice. These things are fundamental things that America thinks matter. So sadly, we must also acknowledge another reason we're here. Congress is acting because of an extreme Supreme Court has stripped away the right important to millions of Americans that existed for half a century. The Dobbs decision, the court's extreme conservative majority overturned Roe v. Wade and the right to choose. In his concurring opinion, Justice Thomas went either, even further and he wrote the following quote, we should reconsider all the court's substantive due process presidents, including Griswold, Lawrence, Obergefell, that means he thinks we should reconsider whether you've got the right to access to, to, to contraception. And yes, we should reconsider whether you have the right to marry who you love. And that's not only the challenge ahead. When a person can be married in the morning and thrown out of a restaurant for being gay in the afternoon, this is still wrong. Wrong. That's why the people you heard speak today continue to fight to pass the Equality Act. When hospitals, libraries, and community centers are threatened and intimidated, <coughs> excuse me, because they support LGBTQ ch children and families, we have to speak out. We must stop the hate and violence like we just saw in Colorado Springs, where a place of acceptance and celebration was targeted for violence and terror. We need to challenge the hundreds of callous, cynical laws introduced in the states targeting transgender children. 
terrifying families and criminalizing doctors who give children the care they need. We have to protect these children so they know they're loved and we will stand up for them and say they can seek for themselves. Folks, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, transphobia, they're all connected. But the antidote to hate is love. This law and the love it defends strike a blow against hate in all its forms. And that's why this law matters to every single American, no matter who you are or who you love. This shouldn't be about conservative or liberal, red or blue. No, this is about realizing the promise of the Declaration of Independence, a promise rooted in a sacred and secular beliefs, a promise that we're all created equal. We're all entitled to what Abraham Lincoln called an open field and a fair chance. You know, there's nothing more decent, more dignified, more American that we're about what we're doing here today. It's about who we are as a nation. It's about the substance of our laws. It's about being true to the best of the soul of America. Decency, dignity, love. Let me close with something else that happened on the same day that Congress sent me this bill. Brittany Griner was finally on her way home. I got to know her incredible wife as we worked to bring Brittany home from her unjust imprisonment in Russia. We were together in the Oval Office, her wife and I. We heard Brittany's voice on the phone when she was freed. And we addressed the nation together. When we did that, Brittany's wife said, quote, today, my family is whole. My fellow Americans, that all-consuming, life-altering, love and commitment, that's marriage. Thank you to everyone on the hard-fought victory generations in the making. It's been a long road, but we got it done. We're going to continue the work ahead, I promise you. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. And now, let me sign the Respect for Marriage Act into law. We are watching history being made at the White House right now. President Biden is about to sign a bill guaranteeing that states have to recognize same-sex and interracial marriages from other states. This is the closest that Congress could get to codifying the same-sex and interracial marriage protections uh, that the Supreme Court has affirmed and still get the 60 votes necessary in the Senate. Uh, CNN's uh, Phil Mattingly is live for us uh, at the White House right now. And Phil, uh, this is obviously a massive celebration on the South Lawn of the White House, and I assume President Biden is going to take out many pens uh, to, so that he can share them with the, the dignitaries there. We see Vice President Harris on the right, Congressman Gerald Nadler, uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin, the first uh, out lesbian in the Senate, Nancy Pelosi, he's been advocating for same-sex couples' rights uh, since she arrived in Congress. Uh, there's Senator Chuck Schumer, the Majority Leader, and, uh, and uh, obviously um, Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, who uh, is married uh, and has two kids. 
Yeah, I would also note uh, the Republicans that were in that picture, which underscores, I think, the significance of this moment that goes beyond uh, what the actual legislative text says, what the president actually signed into law, and more just the evolution uh, of this issue politically, of the drive toward getting this bill across the finish line. And, and to your point, Jake, this is not everything uh, that LGBTQ advocates wanted, with what they were pushing for. It's not everything that Tammy Baldwin, who really spearheaded this entire effort, when you talk to White House officials, they made clear just how tireless she was. But they did get it across the finish line. It did get 60 votes in the U.S. Senate. It did get Republican support. Now it's logic. Interesting. You see uh, uh, Congresswoman Sharice Davids of the, from the Kansas City, Kansas area, the Overland Park area there on the right side uh, of the screen talking to First Lady Jill Biden. Uh, let's bring a special guest at this White House event, our own Don Lemon, who is going to appear right now with his fiance Tim Malone. Uh, Don, you n- normally cover these things as a journalist. Here you are uh, attending as somebody whom this law could potentially affect. Why was it important for you to attend the signing? Oh, well, uh, hi, Jake. How are you? Thank you for having us on. Uh, Tim is now getting to understand what I do. He says, it's hard to hear. We're right by the speaker and we're trying to listen to you and Phil. It, it will, it's not likely to, it will affect um, us. And we are happy to be here to witness this moment. It was important when we got the invitation from the White House. I said immediately, absolutely, we want to come and we want to experience this. As you know, Jake, we got engaged just before COVID happened. We're in the process of planning our wedding and then it got sidetracked. And then after we were able to go back to the courthouse and uh, start preparing our to get married again, uh, we went to the courthouse, got our marriage license. It expires on December 18th, so we have to get married before December 18th. Oh, we got to go stand in line at the courthouse in New York and do it all over again. Tim, first of all, Tim, let me tell you, the, t- the key for these kinds of events is to have two IFBs in, one in yeah. each one of your ears Pretty to block tough. out the sound. I know, I don't think that we had four IFBs for you guys. Um, but, but as a civilian, uh, what is it like to watch President Biden sign this legislation as, as part of the celebration? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I don't know what I expected to be here today, but the crowd was pretty, pretty lively. I think everyone's in a really good mood, and it's, it's pretty exciting to be here. I'm glad we came. And it is packed. I've been speaking to people. Jake, you're here a lot. You've been here a lot. You're a White House correspondent. I haven't seen this many people on the South Lawn in quite some time. I think they said when the, um, the infrastructure bill was signed, maybe. But, I mean, there's tons of people, and it's great because it's members of the LGBTQ uh, I plus community and allies. Our very own Margaret Hoover's here who has fought for marriage equality for so long. She's here as well. I mean, it's just, it's fantastic. Everybody's happy. I was speaking to some members of the press and they said, there's no vitriol, there's nobody fighting about politics. Everyone is just happy to be here. It's a really good spirit and a good mood right now. It's still a lot of work to be done, but it is nice to have this achievement in the books. Don Lemon and Tim Malone, thank you both. Uh, and I will look for my invitation in the mail <laughs> whenever, whenever the date is finally set. Congratulations. A great day for, for all Americans, for all thank Americans. You. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Coming up next, new details behind that fusion discovery and why researchers are calling it one of the biggest scientific breakthroughs of our time and the disturbing acts inmates say are happening behind bars. How a major investigation is trying to bring the dark details to the light. Stay with us. And we're back with our Money Lead new economic data today, bringing some good news for the American people. Inflation cooled more than expected last month. Here to explain CNN's Matt Egan and economist Mohammed El Arian, who's the president of Queens College at the University of Cambridge. So, Matt, walk us through exactly what we're learning from today's new data. 
Well, Jake, inflation is still high. Yeah. But it is getting better. This new report showed that consumer prices in November jumped 7.1% year over year. That is not healthy. That is not a good number. In fact, at any other point in the last 40 years, as you can see on that chart, that would be a terrible number. But everything is relative. And this is another step in the right direction. This is actually the fifth month in a row where annual inflation has cooled off. It's the lowest level for this reading all year. You have to go back to the last December. And if you dig into the numbers, there are some good signs here. Core inflation, which strips out food and energy, increased by the smallest amount in 15 months. We saw price declines for airfare, used cars, medical care, energy prices. They also cooled up. All of that, good news. I do think we have to be careful not to declare uh, victory too early here, right? There have been some head fakes along the way. Inflation has been very stubborn. 7% inflation is still 7% inflation. But Hopefully this trend continues because that would bring real relief to families. It would also lower the risk that the Fed causes a recession by doing too much to put this inflation fire out. Yeah, so you said good news about core inflation, which doesn't include food and energy. Hold that thought because I'm going to ask you about that. Uh, But, Mohammed, I want to ask you, President Biden was asked when he expects prices to get back to normal. He said, quote, I hope by the end of next year, so the end of 2023, we'll be much closer. Do you think that's realistic? I think by the end of 2023, inflation will be even lower than what it is today, which is good news because 7% is still too high. Um, Normal is a different concept to different people. I suspect we're going to get down to the fours and then inflation risks getting pretty sticky at around 4%. All right. And Matt, you noted overall inflation, core inflation going down. Food inflation, though, that remains stubbornly high. That's what's really causing a lot of people pain at the grocery store. What is affected and why? Yeah, that's right. I mean, sticker shock at the grocery store is real. Food prices overall up 10% from a year ago. That is significant. And look at these specific categories. Butter, 27% more expensive. Flour, 25%. Bread, milk, chicken, eggs, 49% more expensive than a year ago. The last time we saw an annual gain like that, I wasn't even alive. You have to go back to February of 1984. As far as why this is happening, there's a lot of different factors. There's extreme weather, the war in Ukraine. Uh, eggs have been hurt by the avian flu. Butter has been hurt by supply issues around milk. No matter the cause, these are staples. This is real pain for people. And it shows that even though overall inflation is cooling off, some areas remain pretty hot. And, Mohammed, I want to play something that the CEO of United Airlines, Scott Kirby, said on CNN this morning about his view of the chances of a recession in the United States. Take a listen. If I didn't watch business shows or, or read the Wall Street Journal, the word recession wouldn't be in my vocabulary because we just don't see it in our data. In fact, every month we set new records. Uh, you know, a lot of what's happening, I think, is a return to normalcy. What do you make of that? I make that there are two U.S. economies right now, and that's true whether you talk about economic activity or whether you talk about inflation. There's the manufacturing and the services. Manufacturing is contracting. Parts of manufacturing are already in recession. Services are doing just fine. And United is doing just fine because people are wanting to travel. So the consumption of services is still healthy, but the consumption of certain goods is under pressure. And you see that in inflation. The high inflation is happening in the service sector and the low inflation is happening in the goods sector. So what he is talking about is these two U.S. economies 
and the importance um, for policy to address the whole economy and not just focus on one or the other. Mohamed El Arian and Matt Egan, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Turning to our national lead now, a historic breakthrough that could change life on this planet as we know it. Now the scientists have figured out how to replicate the energy of the sun using a nuclear fusion reaction. How long could it be until there is an unlimited supply of this precise clean energy? CNN's Renee Marsh takes a look now at how scientists are moving forward with the so-called holy grail of carbon-free power. This is one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century. Or, as the president might say, this is a BFD. The breakthrough happened inside this Department of Energy lab in California. U.S. scientists have effectively figured out how to bottle the sun using 192 high-powered lasers to simultaneously fire upon two hydrogen atoms. The pressure and heat fuse them together, unleashing energy that replicates the conditions that has allowed the sun to burn bright for billions of years. This milestone moves us one significant step closer to the possibility of zero carbon abundant fusion energy powering our society. We could use it to produce clean electricity, uh, transportation fuels, power heavy industry. On December 5th, for the first time ever, the fusion produced more energy than the lasers used to drive it. For an energy source to be viable, the energy output must be larger than the energy used to produce it, proving nuclear fusion is a feasible energy source with no carbon footprint and no radioactive waste. It took not just one generation, but generations of people pursuing this goal. And uh, it's a scientific milestone. The discovery is critical in the quest to pivot away from dirty energy sources like fossil fuels and power our everyday lives using clean energy. But it could be decades before it's available for wide-scale use. And by that time, the climate crisis could have reached a tipping point. Well, Jake, the Biden administration has set an aspirational goal of getting a commercial fusion reactor up and running in the next decade. But when you talk to a lot of these scientists, they say it's more like two to three decades from now. Well, it's good to have a goal, though. Remember when JFK did that with Man on the Moon? People, there were naysayers at the time. We'll see. We'll see. Renee Marsh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the major investigation uncovering disturbing acts inside America's federal prison system and the brave women coming forward to shed light on the problem. Stay with us. In our buried lead, that's what we call stories we think are not getting enough attention, a damning and disturbing new Senate report finding widespread sexual abuse in federal women's prisons. The bipartisan report revealing that female inmates were abused in at least 19 of the 29 federal facilities that have held women prisoners over the past decade and finding that many allegations of abuse were not even investigated. Joining us now to discuss is Senator John Ossoff. He's Democrat of Georgia and the chairman of the Homeland Security Subcommittee that launched this investigation. Senator, good to see you as always. So your committee interviewed dozens of whistleblowers for this report. Today you held a hearing with three brave women who told their stories about how authorities failed to protect them. I want to play some of the sound of what they told you today. He told me that my cell was in a perfect area because the security cameras could not see him coming or going. He told me that if I didn't follow his orders, he would interfere with my transfer. 
He then raped me. FMC Lexington Management granted my attacker unrestricted and unsupervised contact with me on work details, which gave him one-on-one access to abuse or threaten to abuse me. Horrifying stories. How widespread do you think this kind of abuse is? Jake, thank you for helping to shed light on this crisis in federal prisons. We heard from those three survivors of sexual assault in federal prisons, and there are so many more uh, who they represent. We found that in two-thirds of federal prisons that have housed women in the last decade, there has been sexual assault of female inmates by employees of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Some of the details particularly shocking. At FCI Dublin in California, the warden and the chaplain were both sexually assaulting inmates. At FCC Coleman in Florida, multiple BOP employees abusing multiple women over a sustained period. No one was prosecuted, and in fact, some of those who admitted in sworn statements to raping inmates were permitted to retire with benefits. This is a long-term and systemic crisis at the Federal Bureau of Prisons. That's why I launched this eight-month bipartisan investigation and brought these findings to the public's attention today. Each of the survivors spoke of uh, fear of retaliation if they reported their attackers. Here's what Linda De La Rosa told your committee earlier. I believe the problem is the old boys club. Prison staff, managers, investigators, correctional officers, they all work together for years, if not decades. No one wants to rock the boat, let alone listen to female inmates. How does the system change if there is not one man uh, who's part of the system who is willing to rock the boat, uh, to use a survivor's words? Well, you'll recall, Jake, that I led yet another investigation earlier this year of corruption at Bureau of Prisons facilities, uh, where we saw many of the same issues, a culture of secrecy and impunity, internal investigative processes that were totally dysfunctional, and right up to the very top of this federal agency, apathy, negligence, and ignorance. And change has to start at the top of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Congress has an important role to play conducting oversight and investigations such as I have. And I've also got two major bipartisan bills working through Congress right now. But the real opportunity for immediate change is with the new director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, Colette Peters. She testified today. She's saying the right things. She appears to be serious about reform. She has a big task ahead of her to wrap her arms around this diseased bureaucracy, this deeply dysfunctional federal agency, and make change and make change immediately. So hundreds of sexual abuse allegations have not been investigated, as you know. The report also highlights a case where the Justice Department declined to even investigate male officers accused of abusing prisoners. Is the DOJ, the Justice Department, failing incarcerated women? Well, it has for the last decade. I think in the last year, there have been signs of some new recognition that this is a systemic crisis within the Bureau of Prisons. We heard today at the hearing from the Inspector General from the Department of Justice, who acknowledged that mistakes have been made that have resulted in some of these admitted abusers escaping prosecution. The bottom line, as you mentioned, more than 5,000 allegations of sexual abuse in the last decade. But what we heard from those today who had survived sexual assault, none of them had reported these assaults. There is fear of retaliation. There is widespread non-reporting. And so the extent of abuse is likely much wider 
than what we are able to identify in this eight-month bipartisan hearing. So you spend a lot of effort, laudably, focused on how the United States government treats its prisoners. And look, when somebody gets convicted, they don't not become human anymore. There is an obligation that the government has to keep that person safe, even if they are being incarcerated. But do you think the public cares as much as it should? And do you think your colleagues care as much as they should? I think that the American public is deeply offended by the fact that within federal prison facilities, inmates have been raped by federal officials. It is an absolute outrage and it offends the conscience of every American. And it's an affront to the U.S. Constitution. Our constitutional tradition is rooted in a rejection of tyranny, of cruel and unusual punishment, of the abuse of power and violations of civil rights and civil liberties. Those who are incarcerated, they deserve to do their time. They do not deserve to be raped. They do not deserve to be abused. And those who do abuse them must be held accountable and criminally accountable. Democratic Senator John Ossoff of Georgia, thanks again. Really appreciate your time and your focus on this issue. Thanks, Jake. Coming up, the defense system that Ukraine has been begging for for months. Now sources tell CNN it might finally be on the way. We're going to go to the Pentagon for this one. That's next. In our World Lead, a story reported first on CNN, sources say the United States government is finalizing plans to arm Ukraine with the Patriot missile defense system, something that Ukrainian leaders have been requesting for months now, begging even. The long-range air defense equipment could be especially helpful against Russia's ramped-up attacks on key Ukrainian infrastructure, which has knocked out power and water supply lines across Ukraine, essentially weaponizing winter. CNN's Oren Lieberman is at the Pentagon for us right now. Oren, why the hesitation to give Ukraine this Patriot missile defense system before now, and and why the change of mind? Jake, this has been a process for the Biden administration. It used to be a hard no when it came to Patriot missiles, and then it was we're considering, and now we expect the imminent approval, according to U.S. officials, of Patriot missiles to Ukraine. Part of the challenge with Patriots is the number of soldiers required. Patriot missile batteries require dozens of soldiers, if not 100 soldiers, to properly operate a battery. And the complex systems require months of training. So that was part of the reason the administration decided against sending it earlier. But now it's obvious this war will continue. And because of those attacks on civilian and energy infrastructure on the part of Russia that you just mentioned, that seems to have tipped the scale in the favor of sending Patriot missiles to Ukraine. Now, there is still months of training ahead, and this will be a process. But if you look at what the U.S. has provided so far, Patriot missiles will provide a longer-range option on top of the NASAMs and shorter range that the U.S. has already provided. And once President Biden signs off on this officially, how quickly could the equipment start moving and arriving in Ukraine? Well, the U.S. has shown an ability to move equipment very quickly, whether it's HIMARS or howitzers. The U.S. can get those on a flight into countries near Ukraine and into Ukraine quickly. That's not the challenge. It's how much can they compress the training to make that work. This is normally months of training. Ukraine has shown an ability for its soldiers and its service members to learn U.S. systems, complex systems, very quickly. But I suspect we're about to find out how much you can shorten the timeline on a complex aerial defense system. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Today, the Ukrainian foreign minister warned Russian missile attacks have turned the entire country into a front line. This comes as Ukraine fears Russia could further invade, this time from neighboring Belarus. CNN's Will Ripley joins us now live. And Will, you were near the Ukraine-Belarus border earlier. What did you see? 
They're fortifying their defenses, Jake. They're digging trenches, the kind of trenches that soldiers were using 100 years ago in World War One, And they're putting more soldiers up there at a time that Ukraine needs the resources as they fight intensely on the front lines in the Donetsk region to the east and down uh, across from Kherson, the liberated city, to the south. But up in the north, uh, on the Belarusian side, there are joint combat drills that were happening as recently as last week between the Belarusian army and the Russian army. Now, of course, these two are very economically and militarily close. They actually are formerly part of a union state. Uh, and yet Belarus had said at, at, before the beginning of the war that they weren't going to get involved. But they did allow Russia to invade across their border back in February. And now in at least three Belarusian regions, the number of Russian troops is growing day by day. Now, the question is whether this is some sort of uh, event to stage to try to distract Ukraine and pull them away from other areas, other hotspots where they need the resources, or if Russia is indeed planning to try to drive across the border once the ground freezes, once the deep freeze hits, making swamplands passable. Now, of course, this time, the Ukrainians have a very different uh, surprise. Well, not much of a surprise since they certainly brought us uh, waiting for the uh, potential uh, invaders. They have landmines throughout uh, the forest. They have rigged bridges with explosives, and they have uh, trenches that are staffed 24-7, keeping an eye on the horizon, ready for whatever comes down the road, Jake. And, Will, how the infrastructure issue, uh, Russia targeting critical energy lines, power lines, so as to deprive the Ukrainian people, civilians, of warmth in the freezing cold. How widespread is that problem? Pretty much everybody in Ukraine is living uh, with limited power right now. It might be some here, for example, here in Kiev, they're only without power for a few hours a day. But there are other places where people only have power for maybe an hour or two a day. And it really depends on the status of their power grid. You know, Russia has been relentlessly attacking the power grids across this country. Even here in Kiev earlier today, the air raid sirens went off. In the end, it turned out to be a false alarm. Russian bombers were spotted in the area with the kind of missiles that the Ukrainians cannot shoot down as of now. That's why this Patriot Missile Defense System news is so welcome here in the Ukrainian capital, Jay. All right, Will Ripley, thanks so much. Coming up next, CNN is on the U.S.-Mexico border as we learn of a surge in migrants by 280 percent in one area alone. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, double trouble from Mother Nature. Travel is nearly impossible for millions of Americans experiencing blizzard conditions right now, while millions more are dealing with severe tornado threats. Plus, the triple threat of COVID, RSV, and the flu causing hospitals across the United States to run out of beds. And leading this hour, a looming crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border as the Trump-era border policy known as Title 42 is set to expire next week. Title 42 mostly barred asylum seekers from being able to enter the United States during the pandemic. A surge of more than 7,000 migrants have crossed into the U.S. near El Paso, Texas, over the weekend, and the city is bracing for more people to cross. Hundreds of people have been camped out across the border in Ciudad Juarez, waiting to cross next week. City shelters, border agents, and other local resources are currently overwhelmed, leaving some migrants sleeping on the street and in parking garages. We're going to talk to Democratic Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, who represents the El Paso area, in just a moment. But first, CNN's Ad Lavendera is at the U.S.-Mexico border in El Paso, where thousands of migrants are crossing into the U.S. each day. And authorities are struggling with how to respond. The city of El Paso, Texas, is experiencing a major surge of border crossings as the projected end of a Trump-era COVID restriction draws closer. 
Migrants have been barred from entering the U.S. more than 2 million times since March 2020, when Title 42 was enacted. And in recent days, an average of almost 2,500 migrants a day have been moving across the border between Mexico and the U.S. through El Paso alone. Title 42 is only going to make that situation worse, where they're going to have more apprehensions. And so we're going to see a lot more releases into the community, and we're not prepared for it. Just three weeks ago, according to Customs and Border Protection, the seven-day rolling average was fewer than 1,700. Thousands of migrants are now coming not just from Central and South America, but Haiti and even Cuba, according to U.S. immigration officials. I'm helping them get food and whatever they need. This is not even about politics, it's about humanity. These people are here and they're cold. Some have been camping out across the border in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico, raising concerns they will cross en masse if Trump-era border restrictions end in about a week. Still others have already been boarded onto buses to be processed or turned around under the provisions of Title 42. We are taking steps to be able to manage the expiration of Title 42 and to put in place a process that will be orderly and humane. And we believe that in doing so, we can protect our national security concerns. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas arrived in El Paso today and says he's meeting with Customs and Border Protection, local officials and organizations. For now, the immediate problem is housing and managing a large influx of migrants. If the court cases get resolved and the courts allow Title 42 to be lifted, we're going to see thousands of refugees for whom there isn't shelter. The director of a local El Paso shelter says Border Patrol recently dropped a busload of migrants at his doorstep, and he's worried he'll soon have to turn people away. We're going to have to say no, not because we want to, but simply because we don't have space. The reality is there's just too many people. And Jake, the Biden administration is projecting that as many as nine to 14,000 migrants a day could be arriving at the southern border if Title 42 is lifted next week. That's roughly double the numbers we've seen uh, of apprehensions in the last few months. But there is still a chance that Title 42 is kept in place. There are still court challenges playing out. We should have more information on that later this week, Jake. All right, Dara, thanks so much. President Biden is asking Congress for more than $3 billion as it prepares for the end of Title 42 later this month. But will Congress give him that money? CNN's chief White House correspondent Phil Manningly is back with us. Phil, what is President Biden planning to do with the $3 billion? Jake, it's a significant request that underscores the scale of what administration officials are seeing may happen in less than a week. And the reality behind that request is it's part of a broader funding request that is currently very much in the middle of congressional negotiations to try and assist in border management for technological infrastructure as well, surging personnel down to the border, something that's been underway, all part of an intensive behind-the-scenes process administration officials have been engaged in over the last several weeks, and frankly, for much of the administration, just for this moment. Ed mentioned that there's still some questions in terms of how the courts are going to end up here. For administration officials, they aren't necessarily paying attention to those questions. They are very much preparing for this to happen on December 21st. How is Congress responding to the request, at least so far, from what you can tell? 
The complication here, Jake, is when you talk to Republicans, they've made clear their overall assessment and opposition to how the White House has handled the border up to this point has made them reluctant to engage on many of the requests that have been made. However, it is currently a part of funding negotiations that are underway right now. When you talk to White House officials, they make clear that Republicans want uh, answers on the border. If they want solutions on the border, they are pushing for bipartisan immigration reform, and they also need this funding. And they are, at least based on officials that I've spoken to, willing to have that fight if Republicans vote against the funding, that they're trying to do something at the border. Republicans would be the ones standing in the way here, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thanks. Let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman Veronica Escobar. She represents El Paso, Texas, where the migrant crossings are currently surging. Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us and Merry Christmas. Your lovely background uh, is very enticing. Um, we're seeing these images of crowds at the border crossing into the U.S. What are you see seeing and hearing from citizens in your district? Well, Jake, thanks so much for having me on to talk about this. I have been warning for a long time now, actually for years, that the situation would continue to get worse and become even more unsustainable if Congress didn't act. And as you know, Congress hasn't passed an immigration bill since 1996. And back then, nearly 30 years ago, what Congress did was essentially limit legal pathways. And Congress and um, administrations before the Biden administration have chosen to address immigration as a border-only issue. Dealing with immigration as a border-only issue has created the humanitarian crisis that we face today. So here's what I'm hearing on the ground here in my community. And, and Jake, I, it's, it's important for me to say our community and a handful of other communities have consistently uh, um, shouldered the brunt of this burden uh, for far too long, and, and we need help. Um, but I'm hearing from agents and their families how incredibly stressful this situation is. The, the impact, the stress on families, children uh, who are supporting our federal law enforcement personnel, you know, our, our personnel are missing birthdays, holidays, et cetera. I'm hearing from our NGOs how overstressed they are, over capacity. Local governments um, are doing the best that they can to provide the support, but they need the resources so that um, we aren't dipping into local funds. I do also want to say that I'm very grateful to the Biden administration. They're the first administration that is fully reimbursing local communities like my own for expenses, but we need more than money. Uh, we need legislation and, and we need more innovative solutions, uh, which I have provided to the administration and to appropriators. As you note, El Paso does not have the capacity to absorb all the people crossing into Texas, uh, even with the re reimbursements going on. In fact, in El Paso, border encounters were up 280 percent in October when compared to the same month last year. And then today, a reporter saw a group of migrants who, who made a makeshift camp in a parking garage as local shelters were completely overwhelmed, that group was later kicked out of the garage. Would you call what is happening right now in El Paso a crisis? Because it looks like, it looks like one yeah. from where I'm sitting. Yeah, it's it's absolutely a humanitarian crisis. When we have people sleeping on the streets. Um, it, the, the, that is an unacceptable situation 
for them, for the community. Um, and there is a solution to this. I, you know, we have done a, a great job as a community of essentially helping move folks um, between what Border Patrol is doing and what uh, the County of El Paso is doing to make sure that migrants are getting to their final destination. Because as you know, uh, Jake, El Paso isn't their destination. They are uh, reuniting with family across the country as they await their asylum hearing. Where we don't have the help and support is in the emergency shelter uh, area. Most of these folks have purchased either airline tickets once they've gotten here or Greyhound bus tickets, but sometimes they can't get a ticket out the same day. And, and you know, they'll have to wait one day or two days and they need a place to sleep, a place to stay. And our NGOs are beyond capacity. So I've called, uh, I had a conversation late last night with Rosa DeLauro, uh, our appropriations chairwoman, and I see the omnibus as an opportunity. Uh, you know, your, your reporter just talked about the government funding that we're hoping to get done for the next 12 months and that we're hoping to pass before uh, Christmas Eve. I'm hoping that that omnibus, and I've advocated for, written a letter, spoken to Rosa, to Chairwoman DeLauro. We also need, in addition to robust funding, everything that was laid out uh, in, in uh, by your reporter, we also need federally run emergency shelters so that we don't have folks sleeping on the street. And so my hope is that Republicans will see what's happening, will understand that we need the resources to respond immediately to uh, this humanitarian crisis. But over the long term, Jake, Congress has kicked the can for too long. Uh, there is a way for us to address this, not just in a way that promotes security, in a way that promotes our self-interest, but in a way that also doesn't sacrifice our values. So I'm hoping that we can work together to get there. I know uh, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary uh, Alejandro Mayorkas uh, was there and has been at the border. Do you think it would help matters if President Biden came to the border and saw this for Himself, And I don't mean that in a gimmicky way of trying to score points, because I know Republicans in the House and Senate, sometimes it sounds like they're just trying to score points. But you're describing a legitimate humanitarian crisis. It sounds as though it's something that the president would benefit from seeing with his own eyes. And maybe he can, you know, kick some butts and get the funding and relief that you need. Jake, I welcome anyone and everyone to the border, and the president has an open invitation that I extended early on in his administration, actually when he was a candidate, and I worked on his um, immigration unity task force uh, to craft comprehensive immigration reform for the Congress. I, I will say this, so he's absolutely welcome here anytime, and I think it, it's very eye-opening anytime anyone comes to see for themselves uh, the opportunity and the great challenge that, that comes uh, with uh, immigration at the, at the southern border. But a part of, of, of what I keep pushing back every time my colleagues um, or others ask me, you know, do you want the president to go to the border? I want Congress to act. I want Congress to do its job. The president has tried to address and is working on addressing root causes, bringing together Western hemispheric countries to find a solution, but that's long-term. The president has um, expedited relief and support for communities like my own, but that doesn't permanently address the challenge. The challenge is legislative. And, and Jake, you, you all have had stories on CNN about the national labor shortage. 
we have an opportunity as yep. a country to think about immigration in a way that is strategic, that would help us better manage the border, um, end this humanitarian crisis once and for all, help communities like mine, help border patrol agents and law enforcement personnel, and raise our GDP. So, But we need Congress to do that, and a presidential visit uh, accomplish that. Yeah, we had uh, former Massachusetts Governor uh, Republican Charlie Baker talking about the need for labor in Massachusetts uh, and how he wants Congress to act. There's an obvious, you know, humanitarian uh, relief for dreamers, et cetera, a step, as well as a border security step, compromise to be had. It's just very few people uh, seem to want to do it when a push comes to shove. Congresswoman Veronica Escobar of Texas, thank you so much. Always good to have you on. Thank you, Jake. Speak out against the government and face a death sentence. Growing concern that a former Iranian soccer player could be executed for merely protesting the regime. Plus, we now know more details about the final January 6th committee meeting. Stick around. And we're back with our world lead. Today in Iran's capital city, Tehran, a local official says 400 people received prison sentences for participating in widespread protests over the Islamic Republic's oppressive regime. So far, Iran's government has officially executed at least two protesters. Eleven have been sentenced to death, and Amnesty International counts nine more at risk of getting the death penalty. One of those nine at risk is Amir Nasser Azudani, a 26-year-old professional soccer player. Sinan Salma Abdulaziz joins us now live. And Salma, what is Iran's regime accusing him of? Well, activist rights groups fear that Iran is preparing to execute this young man. I just want to start by telling you who he is, because it's his story that's being shared by protesters and demonstrators. He's a 26-year-old professional soccer player. He's played for Iran's national youth team. He's played for major clubs, and he is now in detention. He was arrested on November 27th, and Iran's authorities accuse him, allegedly, of attacking and killing several members of Iran's security forces. But again, Rights groups, activists say these are absolutely false allegations, that he is an innocent man whose only crime is speaking out against the government and that he is the latest victim of these sham trials, as rights groups call them, where there is no due process, very little that is fair or right uh, in these so-called trials. Their only intention really is to repress. And Jake, you'll remember... This is not the first time we've seen soccer in the crosshairs of Iran's crackdown. You'll remember that moment in the World Cup where Iran's team refused to sing the national anthem. And then later we heard their families were threatened by Iran's authorities. Well, now we're looking at yet another soccer player possibly facing death by hanging in a matter of days. Absolutely brutal. And Salma, despite this danger, it's amazing. Brave Iranians are still out there protesting. Uh, just yesterday, this protester stood in the middle of the street uh, with a noose around his or her neck, uh, protesting the latest execution. Is there any sign that these demonstrations are slowing? It's a chilling video, that one, isn't it, of that sole woman standing there, unscarved, holding the noose around her neck. You know, protesters in Iran, Jake, they have a saying. They say, for everyone killed, a thousand more will rise up. And in many ways, you see that that's true, because the details of every single victim of this crackdown is shared, not just their death, but also their life, their birthday videos, what they loved, if they sing. And so they become rallying cries. They galvanize this movement evermore, Jake. 
All right, Salma Abdulaziz, thank you so much. Turning to our politics lead, a Biden administration official is no longer employed by the Biden administration after allegedly getting caught stealing luggage from not one, but two different airports. Sam Brinton was responsible for nuclear fuel and radioactive waste at the Department of Energy. He, uh, Britain, identifies as non-binary and gender fluid. Uh, let's bring in a CNN White House correspondent, Jeremy Diamond. Jeremy, what a, it's such a bizarre story. How did this unfold? Yeah, it certainly is, Jake. Until recently, Sam Britton was a deputy assistant secretary at the Department of Energy, responsible for a multi-million dollar budget to research the disposal of nuclear fuel and radioactive waste. Britton is now out of a job after being charged with stealing luggage at two separate airports in recent months. Britton was first charged with stealing a suitcase from a baggage carousel at the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport in September when police called Britain about the incident. They initially denied taking the luggage. Britain then called the officer back, admitted to taking the bag, but claimed it was a mistake. But a second incident came to light earlier this month when police in Nevada charged Britain with grand larceny in a completely separate incident, this time for allegedly stealing luggage at Harry Reid International Airport in Las Vegas. Britain has now either quit or been fired. A spokesperson for the Department of Energy would only say that Britain is no longer a DOE employee, adding that, quote, by law, the department cannot comment further on personnel matters. Now, several House Republican lawmakers have jumped on this case to claim this incident indicates the Biden administration prioritized, quote, wokeness over competence in hiring Britain in the first place. But we should note that Britain was not a Biden appointee. They were instead hired as a senior civil service uh, uh, official. A White House spokesperson noted that there are nearly two million civil service employees across the federal government, and they referred any other questions to the Department of Energy. All right, Jeremy Diamond, thanks so much. Appreciate it. New reporting just into CNN, why the Department of Justice is in court trying to get access to the phone belonging to one specific Republican congressman. Stay with us. In the politics lead, what may be the last acts of the January 6th Select House Committee, Chairman Benny Thompson says the panel will hold its final public meeting next Monday where its final report is expected to be approved. The chairman says announcements about criminal referrals will be made on Monday. The committee's final report is due out two days later on Wednesday, December 21st. And this just into CNN, the Justice Department is now seeking the phone contents of Republican Congressman Scott Perry's phone after the 2020 election. Perry, along with other Republican lawmakers, were pushing Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in text messages to pursue wild conspiracy theories and actions regarded, regarding voting machines among baseless allegations of election fraud. CNN's Caitlin Plants joins us now live with more on this. Caitlin, has the Justice Department gotten access to Perry's phone? Well, Jake, that we don't know just yet, but we are able to report um, through our sources and also through some public court filings that have been out, out there, some of our observations of the courthouse, that the Justice Department was trying to get access to the data on Scott Perry's phone uh, and that there was an under seal court proceeding around this. So what we knew happened publicly was that Perry's phone was seized uh, by agents back in August. He challenged publicly uh, the Justice Department's ability to access the data on his phone. And then the proceeding went on 
under seal. It went confidential. And in October, we were able to observe lawyers representing Perry and Justice Department prosecutors, now people who are working with special counsel Jack Smith on this January 6th investigation. They had a sealed proceeding before Judge Howell. That was about this search. We don't know the result of it right now. Grand jury proceedings are secret uh, as they're ongoing. Scott Perry's lawyer declined to comment to us, as did the Justice Department. But Jake, Scott Perry is a pretty notable person uh, in this effort after the election for Donald Trump. He was the person introducing Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark to Trump. He was pushing uh, for others in the federal government to get involved, to be looking into election security, to push these baseless fraud claims. And also he was interested in the intelligence community, even looking in to voting machines. And, and Caitlin, obviously this revelation, uh, this story that you're breaking right now, it makes many of Perry's past text messages uh, take on new significance. Right. So the House Select Committee and CNN as well were able to get access to some of the Meadows text messages. Not everything Meadows was communicating about uh, around this time. But in them, there are messages from Representative Scott Perry directly to Meadows. And what he was saying uh, was he wanted to get a message out to anyone who would be sympathetic. He wanted to pass on information from a cyber forensics team. And he wants Meadows to share with people in states. He's asking him for contacts. And he writes things like uh, Meadows. He's asking him, preserve the specific voting machines, scanners used at the polling places where the glitch occurred. Put them under lock and key. Nobody touches them. He also writes to Meadows on November 10th, preserve all email communications with the officials responsible for the software updates, authorization software updates, deploying software updates to the vo voting machines. And then also ask Meadows to tell people, preserve the technicians, laptops, iPad, phone, or any other device used in the official execution of their duties to update voting machines. So all of these text messages at that time, Jake, those are about prying into the election administration, getting someone inside the White House close to Donald Trump to help. Yeah, and a reminder that there were several court cases in Pennsylvania, the state that Scott Perry represents, uh, and there, were, there was no evidence provided ever of any election fraud or glitch or anything like that at all. Caitlin Plants, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss with our panel. Uh, Gloria, these text messages between Meadows and, and dozens of lawmakers, especially we see Scott Perry right there, Congressman Perry, really highlight that there were a lot of people involved in this effort to overturn democracy. Well, you have more than uh, 400 texts with Meadows from members of Congress. Uh, Perry, in particular, was citing all these conspiracy theories, invite, you know, including with Great Britain, Italian satellites, China. And I think what's most disturbing is if you look at these text messages and what Caitlin is saying, is that he kept quoting intelligence sources. He wanted to get the director of national intelligence involved. And if I'm the Department of Justice, one of the reasons I want to look at the contents of his phone is who in, in the intelligence community, or formerly of the intelligence community, was he communicating with mm -hmm. to get this completely fraudulent information. And, and, and one of the ways that a bipartisan group of Democrats and Republicans was trying to make sure what happened in the last election doesn't happen again uh, was the Electoral Count Act, which would bring clarity to the part of the Constitution that people were trying to exploit to get Pence to overturn the election. Um, and Senate Majority Chuck Schumer, he wants to include that in the big spending bill, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, he told this conference he's a hell no on that bill. Is it, so it's just not going to happen? 
Uh, I think it, I actually think it still could. Um, and of course, they're trying to do this before the end of the year, before McCarthy has his speaker fight, has the opportunity potentially to become House Speaker, and before Republicans take over the majority. If they're able to do that, we saw Senator Susan Collins today say, we need to enact this, we need to get this in place before the end of the year, before the 2024 presidential cycle really starts to heat up. Uh, if they can do that, I do think it has a chance of passing. But also simultaneously, you know, trying to get this into the year-end spending bill, the omnis bill, will be difficult. We're not even sure it will pass. Um, I think right now we saw Mitch McConnell today say that if they cannot get an omnibus bill done by the end of the year, by December 22nd, um, they're going to go home, senators, and they'll have to do a long-term, short or longer-term continuing resolution, which is a short-term funding bill. And so it's really going to depend on whether they can fit all this in and actually get a long-term spending bill done before the end of the year. And, and Rita, just on that point, Mitch McConnell uh, said what, what Elena just said, but uh, McCarthy was saying something different before the midterms. Mm -hmm. He was saying, I don't want to start the government out in a shutdown. People are going to want us to see <laughs> us accomplish things on the, on the commitment. But now he has a completely different point of view. I mean, these are the toughest seven weeks of Kevin McCarthy's life, let's be honest. And I think in general, when you look at the situation, what I take away from it is that McCarthy's just all wrong. He's got no calculus on this. The guy has no confidence of his caucus. He's got junior members who are speaking out against him in a fashion that we have not seen for years. The unfavorables are so high that I, I mean, I see him eking this one out. I do. He's got a fantastic whipping operation. He's you mean had to, it for to become years. the speaker? To become the speaker. Yeah. Does he deserve the speaker's gavel? That's the other question. There are a great many Republicans who just do not believe in him. And what we're seeing right now is this. This is just constantly the problem with Congress. And it's going to make its way to the American public sooner than later. And we already see the frustration, the rage against the machine politics. But what this is going to do, this doesn't make it better for the Republicans to go back to their base and say, we've been trying to rewrite the rules for you because the rules are all wrong. This makes it harder for them because they're showing they have no solutions, they have no way, and they can't find a way. You know, it's interesting, and I wonder how you would answer this question, mm -hmm. because uh, earlier today, Manu Raju said something to McCarthy about how Matt Gates, the, the MAGA Republican congressman from Florida, Matt Gates says he doesn't have the votes. McCarthy doesn't have right. the votes to be speaker. McCarthy says, "Yeah, I, I do. Who do you believe, me or Matt Gates?" And I thought to myself, <laughs> "That's a re that's actually really a tough question." That is a very tough question. But I think you talked about what Kevin McCarthy said before the election. He said a lot of things before the election. He also said that Republicans were going to govern that Republicans were going to focus on bringing solutions to the American people on inflation, on crime, on everything that they ran on. And what's the first thing that they announced? Investigations, possible impeachments. And now they're obsessed and they're focused on the speakership. And what is Kevin McCarthy doing? He is selling out to his MAGA constituents in order to be able to get to the number that he needs to get for this. And what this says to me is that there's going to be a big split, in a, if it can get any bigger, between the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans. McConnell is speaking common sense. He wants to get this done, I believe. He wants to get this done because he knows how this is going to look to, in front of the American people, the Republican Party, yet again, if they don't get this done and there's a possible shutdown and, and all of the chaotic rest of it. This is exactly what happened during the election, right? The, the, the House Republicans were focused on election deniers, and a lot of them still won. There's still 147 Republicans who did not certify the election mm -hmm. in Congress. But the senators, they saw what happened when they actually gave voice to those non-common uh, sense Republicans, to the election deniers. They lost the Senate. 
And so I think this is what is going to be looked at in the Republican Party as to who is going to win. And there's going to be a big battle still. They have not learned their their lesson in terms of the election, at least the House Republicans. That battle is still ahead. I I believe the worst is yet to come for the Republican leadership in the House. Well, they only have what, four or five votes? That McCarthy can only lose four votes in a, in, in a right? It would have been right. better to not have won the House, honestly. I mean, with this slim of a margin, my gosh, how is he going to corral this clown caucus, number one? How is he going to get anything done? Well, he how can't. is he going to stay Speaker? <laughs> I mean, well, is it possible speaker, that he doesn't get the Speakership? I there's, think, I, honestly, I... I there's not there's a strong, there's, there's, there's not a strong uh, alternate yeah. candidate. Anything's possible. There's not right. a strong alternate candidate. But just to explain this to our, to our viewers... So assuming that they don't get this omnibus spending bill uh, through, Mm -hmm. then it goes to the next Congress when Kevin McCarthy is in charge. Theoretically, he's the Speaker of the House. Let's just assume that happens. And the fear, I think, that a lot of moderate Republicans, even some conservative Republicans and certainly Democrats have is Kevin McCarthy can only lose four votes. Democrats are not going to want to own any 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 of these fights. Uh, and you'll have the Margie Taylor Greens of the world hold, making demands, making mm-hmm. big, big demands and having the power to do so. Right. Exactly. I mean, having such a narrow majority is a nightmare for McCarthy and for whoever will control the speakership. I do think, you know, and just going back to what we were discussing before as well about one with the omnibus and spending package, even though he's privately saying we want to be able to handle this, wait till uh, the majority Republicans have the majority. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want this fight to play out at the same time that he's trying to win this leadership race. And also, I do think, I mean, I know there's a lot of talk about what kind of demands can Kevin McCarthy make um, or cave on, excuse me, uh, to some of these far right figures, people like Scott mm-hmm. Perry, like Matt Gates. I think one thing, though, is even if he does make their demands, the big one right now is on motion to vacate the chair, which right. is a very messy, messy. But just to explain that, that it uh, doesn't that mean we, at any moment we can like get yes. rid of the speaker? Well, they can, and and Democrats can do it too. It's not right. just Republicans. Right. I mean, they can make a motion to vacate the chair, and so it's like, sure, you can hang on to power, but how long will you have it? Um, and I do think that even if he does cave on this, and it's unclear right now. I've been talking a lot with his team and others. Um, he knows that this could really jeopardize his position if he doesn't cave, but also recognizes how dangerous it would be. But I don't know if they would even, some of these members would even still vote for him after this. They, like Matt Gaetz's and Andy Biggs, it's very personal. I guess, yeah. Can I just say one thing? In the short term, nobody wants to be responsible for shutting down the government. Yeah. It is not a popular thing to do. Thanks one and all for being here. Hospitals across the country are running out of beds because of a virus triple threat. That's next. In our world lead, red tape and backlogs are the reality for tens of thousands of Afghans that the United States left behind, whom the United States promised to get out of Afghanistan after they assisted U.S. troops during that 20-year war. Now, following the chaotic U.S. withdrawal in August 2021 and subsequent Taliban takeover, many of those Afghan allies are in danger. They're forced into hideouts as Taliban hunt them and their families down. CNN's chief national security correspondent, Jim Shudo joins us now. And Jim, in addition to reporting on this story, you've been trying to get a family out, an Afghan family out for more than a year. Tell us about the process. And to be clear, I'm not alone. I know you've helped families. Many of our colleagues have as well. Uh, They are one of thousands. This is a family I've known for more than 15 years. Father worked for the U.S. military in a sufficient capacity to qualify for a special immigrant visa and has, in fact, been provisionally approved. The thing is, That does not get you out of the country. First of all, it took more than a year for that to happen. 
and he's been in danger all that time, separated from his family because of the risk from the Taliban. But even when you get that approval, you just get in the queue, in effect. And, and, and let's just, for folks at home, look at the numbers right now. At this very moment, there are 15,000 principal applicants, these are the people who work for the U.S. military, who are ready to fly, as the State Department says, as, about, as well as about 30,000 immediate family members. That's 50,000 people. The State Department, when it's running flights, is getting about 250 out per week. At that rate, that takes four years. They stopped those flights for the World Cup, by the way, because those flights are going to Qatar. Behind them, another 100,000. So you look at that math there, and it shows you that that promise, you talk about broken promises. The U.S. made a commitment to these people to get them out of the country. They may say that they're fulfilling that commitment, but actions show they're not because the hurdles are just too great to get them out. So these are individuals that are largely um, being able to come to the United States, not, a, not enough of them, but under a thing called the Special Immigrant Visa or yes. CIV program, mm-hmm. an extension for more than another year uh, of the CIV pro- program was going to be in the defense spending bill last last week, and then it was taken out. Yeah. Why was it taken out? What are lawmakers telling you about there's, that? There's not a good answer to that. The simple question is that there's just not a lot, enough political support for this. I mean, there's, there's open opposition to it from some Republicans, and there's not, it's not like you hear Democrats talking about this every day either, except with the exception of a few. I spoke to Seth Moulton today, who, as you know, is an Afghan veteran himself, He's livid, and listen to what he attributes this to, because it's, it's drawing to hear. It's a betrayal, uh, not only of our Afghan allies, but of our own troops, of our troops like myself who made that promise that if you come and work for us, if you put your life on the line for America, we will have your back. They're risking lives, not just Afghan lives, but American lives. Uh, by this anti-immigrant, frankly, outright racist approach to this problem. Anti-immigrant, racist approach. That's what, that's what he attributes it to there. And as you know, this is, of course, a threat to those Afghan civilians. As I said, this family I've been dealing with, they live in fear every day that the husband will be found and killed. And, and that's not an imaginary thing because the Taliban is hunting these people down. But you also have U.S. veterans who fought, were wounded, and may have lost uh, their fellow soldiers who feel that their sacrifice is being betrayed as well. And, and that's another risk. It's happening every day. Yes. Seth Moulton, who's a Marine, uh, he's a Democrat from Massachusetts. But the people I hear the most from about are U.S. veterans who are conservatives, who are conservative Absolutely. Republicans, and do not understand what is going on. No question. And I spoke to an NCO today as well on the air who feels the same way. It's not just folks serving in Congress, vets, by any means. It's vets who are at home watching this play out. Jim Shuto, thanks so much. A massive winter storm is burying millions in snow and spawning tornadoes in other parts of the country. Where that storm is heading next, stay with us. From blizzard conditions to tornadoes, millions of Americans from coast to coast are bracing for some form of extreme weather. At least one confirmed tornado touched down and blew apart homes in the city of Wayne, Oklahoma, southeast of Oklahoma City. This morning, and there are tornado warnings popping up across Louisiana this evening. East of Denver and across the northern plains, blizzard conditions with wind gusts up to 60 miles per hour and a foot of snow are making travel nearly impossible. CNN meteorologist Jennifer Gray is in the CNN Weather Center. Uh, Jennifer, where's the, the biggest threat right now? I think the biggest threat is the severe side of things. We have active tornado warnings going on across portions of Louisiana. You can see the tornado watches in effect. These are extended until 10 o'clock this evening, central time. These hot pink boxes, these are tornado warnings. There's one just on the south side of Shreveport. Another one just popped up across Bossier and Webster parishes. And you can see, uh, including 
portions of Shreveport, just on the south side, I-49 and I-20. So this is a very dangerous situation. We have had reports of tornadoes uh, in progress all through Texas. And so the uh, situation there is still very dire. We're looking at the possibility of tornadoes, large hail, damaging winds, especially this area highlighted in orange. And Jake, this is going to get very dangerous as we go throughout the overnight hours when we know that uh, tornado outbreaks can be even more deadly because people are asleep and they're not getting their weather warnings as they should. So make sure you stay weather alert if you are in this area. These storms are going to continue and be very, very um, dangerous as we go throughout the overnight hours into tomorrow morning. We also have the wintry side of this, as you were mentioning, ongoing blizzard conditions across portions of, say, Nebraska, South Dakota, even on into eastern sections of Colorado, where I-70 and I-76 were closed down because of the conditions. So we have winds of 40, 50, 60 miles per hour and zero visibility. So you have very heavy snow, gusty winds. That snow is blowing all around. So blizzard conditions there. Uh, you can see some of these areas we have visibility down to zero. So if we put this into motion, you can see the timing of all of this, the storms continue throughout the overnight tonight into tomorrow, and you can see the threat will remain across the Gulf Coast for that severe weather. The snow should be winding down just a little bit by tomorrow afternoon, but then it should pick back up again for portions of the Northeast by the end of the week, Jake. All right, Jennifer Gray, thanks so much. And our health lead now, hospitals across the United States are struggling to keep up with patients sick from a trifecta of respiratory viruses. There's RSV. There's COVID, and then there's the seasonal flu. Joining me now is CNN's Dr. Tara Narula. Uh, Dr. Narula, what, what's the situation like now for hospitals? Well, Jake, hospitals were required to report capacity beginning in 2020 at the start of the COVID pandemic. And we told you last week that they were up to about 80 percent, which was really an all-time high in the last two years. The only other time we saw those numbers was last January at the height of Omicron. This week, the numbers are slightly better, but still high. We're about 77 percent capacity. This is why we're seeing stories about patients in hallways that are being treated, conference rooms in tents. And it is this triple threat of what you mentioned, RSV, COVID, and flu, that is contributing in a, in, to a large degree. We know that RSV numbers do seem to have peaked and the hospitalizations seem to be coming down. When you look at the COVID patients and how many are taking up beds, it's about 6% of the beds that are COVID patients compared to about 25% last January. So that's not the whole story. And then you add in the flu. And here's where, you know, we really are seeing high numbers. We had the CDC director telling us last week that we have the, the highest number of hospitalizations for this time of year in the past decade, about 120,000 hospitals hospitalizations in total, a third of hospitalizations and deaths from flu coming just in the last week alone. So this is definitely a big part of the story, Jake. Another part is workplace staffing shortages, both in the hospital and in places where we discharge patients to, like nursing homes and rehabs. And then the backlog of patients who did not get their care for certain other conditions over the past two years. And I know you're going to tell me uh, that I'm a good boy because I got my flu shot and I got my latest COVID booster and that everybody else should do that, too. What else can we do to keep to keep our, ourselves and our family members safe besides the flu shot and the COVID booster? Yeah, well, certainly all the basics, hand washing, disinfecting, ventilation, and then masking in areas of high transmission or if you are immunocompromised, elderly or vulnerable, and then rapid COVID tests that can be taken before you see your family members. And Jake, there's 12 days on my advent calendar till Christmas. So that's enough time to get those vaccines. All right. I didn't know you had an advent calendar. <laughs> we Do Dr. Narula, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks. CNN is going to talk exclusively with a Russian soldier who deserted Vladimir Putin's army 
after witnessing the horrors that Russia is unleashing on Ukraine that's coming up in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. Until tomorrow, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN, and you can download our podcast from whence you get your podcasts. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.